how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, back to the as severe critical as biological disorient in this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that planet. That is the only thing which is sustainable. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Put these Action informed by knowledge of get down place. To work. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. The part cannot comprehend the whole, though it can stand for it and buy it. And the health and fertility of each involves and is involved in the health and fertility of all. Presented in the Community and Development series, Greg Watson delivered his speech, The Wisdom That Builds Community, in October 1997. Let's have a look at it. I'm going to, uh, I am going to talk about work in um, the Dudley Street community in Roxbury in a little bit, but... um, and I'm, I'm going to sort of arrive there, uh, since Buckminster Fuller was my, really was sort of my, my guru of sorts, I, you'll, you'll see very quickly that this talk will be nonlinear uh, in structure, and, but eventually it will probably come back full circle and hopefully will make some sense. Um, but it also will have to be, and, but eventually it will probably come back full circle and hopefully will make some sense. Um, but it also will have to be, uh, I think the only way that it will make sense is if there's a bit of personal history, so that you kind of get a sense of, of why and how I got to um, at, at the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. Um, I actually grew up in uh, cities, in the inner city. Um, I grew up in um, Cleveland, Ohio, before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Jacobs Field, when the only uh, guests claim the fame that Cleveland had were, the, uh, were Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River. As a matter of fact, when people ask me, Greg, why is it that you as an African American, especially growing up 50s and 60s and going to school in the in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, why did you commit yourself to the environmental movement, which is really how I got started? I often tell them that, the, that the, the short answer is because I grew up in Cleveland. And when you grow up in an area where the only two natural bodies of water you know are one, that the lake that eutrophied thousands of years before its time, and the other was the river made infamous by Randy Newman in his song, Burn On Big River, uh, the mighty Cuyahoga really did literally catch on fire occasionally. So polluted with flammable pollutants that occasionally a, a cigarette or a match flicked over the side of a barge would ignite the surface and it would erupt in flames. Black billows of smoke would, would fill the air. And I remember standing waiting for school buses a number of times and seeing the black specks fall out of the air and asking a, an adult what's going on. And they would just nonchalantly say the river must be on fire again. So that, that was the beginning of sort of my environmental education. And then was I think it really was around 1966 1967, when the, the headlines of the, de- the daily Cleveland paper, The Plain Dealer, read, Cleveland's air declared illegal. So you figure it's another Cleveland joke, and we were the, at that time the brunt of a lot of jokes, but it, it wasn't a joke, and it was one of the first times that a major metropolitan area had been cited as having air quality that was so bad that people were advised to stay indoors, particularly if you had respiratory problems. And the culprits were identified, Cleveland Industrial City, you know, we're right on the, the lake, 
what there was of it, and uh, automobile industry across the, the way in, in Detroit. So we were heavy into everything supporting the automobile industry, rubber, steel, um, screw manufacturing, the whole bit. So the factories and the industries that were identified as being responsible for contributing to the poor air quality were identified by city officials. But this was before people fully understood, really understood what was going on before the technology had even been developed in many cases to deal with this sort of thing adequately. So the perpetrators were not told how to deal with their problem, but they were told, we want you, we want you to address Cleveland's air quality problems, clean up your act. And so what they did was they looked around and, at each other and they did look for the probably the least expensive way out of the situation. They didn't put in scrubbers or, or filters. They didn't change the manufacturing process because they weren't told that they had to. They took the easy way out, easy way out which probably many of you are aware of. What they did was raise their smokestacks just high enough so that the pollutants were thrown high enough into the air so the prevailing winds could carry them away from Cleveland. And Cleveland's air quality problem was eventually sort of at least interesting enough sort of solved. Now, this was just at the time, 1967, that I decided to come to the East Coast to go to school. I came out to Tufts University, and Cleveland's problem followed me right to the East Coast. <laughs> so here I am, now I arrive on the East Coast, and I'm going to, and I'm working in places like Cape Cod, pristine Cape Cod, and I'm looking at these. And it's sort of interesting. I mean, what, among other things, what, the reason I'm bringing this up is that it really did make very clear to me this notion that the interconnectedness of the world is not just a metaphor. It's not just an, an interesting sort of thing. It is very real. We are all interconnected. And the solutions that we seek really do have to take that into consideration because the impact of our technologies is no longer just local. And the impact of the technologies really now are regional or national or global. And the little story about Cleveland coming full circle is that when you go... Uh, 1967, I arrived on Cape Cod and beautiful, looked at the, the kettle lakes and ponds, a different and more insidious type of pollution. Because there you looked at the, the lakes and ponds and they were, they looked crystal clear. And you said, my God, look at this. You can see, you know, it's just really beautiful until you got, were overcome with the eerie sensation that it was so clean that you could actually see down to the bottom. You could see the rocks on the bottom because there was nothing alive in there. There, were no, there was not even algae, so there was nothing to block. And you realize this is a different type, but it's, it's connected to the whole, the whole cycle. So I, I decided that I was going to continue to commit myself at that point to the environmental movement. And see, what's, what's happening is I grew up in the city, but I made a very long route to come back to the city. And the, the title of this talk is really sort of talking about the wisdom that builds community. And part of this journey was discovering just where that wisdom did lie. Uh, and what I began to realize uh, as a result of my journey was that the real wisdom is not the so-called conventional wisdom. And I use conventional wisdom now to describe sort of the wisdom of experts. The wisdom of experts, which we've become to rely upon over and over and over again, and which is continuously sort of, again, sort of, if nothing else, it certainly has not extricated us from the problems. If nothing else, it's, it's, it's digging us deep. So I decided, let me, let me do this. Let me, let me commit myself to the environmental movement because it makes sense and it's just as much of an issue for me as it is, at least I perceive as it is for the rural and suburban areas. This is 1967. It's Tufts University, Southeast Asian War, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, Women's Rights Movement. It wasn't long before, and I took the first courses, Norton Nickerson, great. I was really inspired. I was getting involved in some of the nonprofit or, uh, uh, environmental um, activist groups when the president of the Tufts chapter of the Afro-American Society, Charlie Jordan, called me into his room and said, Greg, what the heck are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? He says, you know, there's all this that's going on in the world today. 
And here you are, fairly articulate, seemingly bright, African-American, and what are you devoting your time and energy and resources to? The environmental movement. I said, yeah. And Charlie looked at me then, square in the eye, and said, you know what, Greg, it wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't even be so bad, he said, if it were, if the environmental movement from the perspective of the African-Americans on campus or the Afro-American society was irrelevant to our cause, we could almost accept that. In fact, it is. You're devoting your time to it. But we see it as much worse. We see the environmental movement as being counterproductive, maybe even sinister, in terms of its motives. And this was 1967 and 60, and I, you know, I was definitely naive back at that time, didn't know what he meant by that, and I asked him to explain. Charlie said, listen to the slogans. Limited growth. No growth. Greg, where, where do we, and people trying to achieve a certain degree of economic equality, where do we fit into that picture? How do we see that as coming close, even coming close, to helping us meet what are some of the most pressing issues around poverty and unemployment and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, and, and the, the plight of the cities? Now, my first thought was I couldn't believe that all my years of formal schooling didn't prepare me to, with any kind of response to that question, because I intuitively felt, I think most of us do, sitting in this room, intuitively felt that the twin goals of economic equality and environmental equality have to be compatible. You've got to be able to, to achieve, and you've got to be able to pursue both, and they should not be exclusive of one another. But I will tell you that at least at that time, I didn't have an intellectual response, and that really bothered me. And so as much search as I might in terms of sort of my formal educational channels, I still wasn't able to find it. And so back at that time, again, 67, 68, 69, I did what a lot of people did. And I see a lot of sort of graying or gray hair. So maybe many of you did the same thing. I went underground. I did. And so I started reading things like the whole earth catalog and uh, small is beautiful. And uh, I discovered, for me, this discovery was a, a guy by the name of Buckminster Fuller. And I, very interesting, it was really one day when I was walking through the bookstore and the book literally fell off the shelf and it was called Intuition. And it was by Bucky Fuller and it was a Paul's poetry form and I sort of read this whole thing in one sitting and he said all these sort of weird words like omnidirectional halos and comprehensive anticipatory design. But the essence, say that fast three times, comprehensive anticipatory design. But there was something there, and it was very important. And the, and the essence was thinking in terms of whole systems. I, I know that sounds trite, but it was very important to say that somebody understood that maybe, maybe we were doing things, excuse the term, ass backwards. Education, for instance. Now, again, I know we're, you know, a lot of folks here, we're, we're you know, at academic institutions here in Massachusetts, but, but the whole thing about education and approach to education is what it does very well is take the world, divide it into parts, and study those parts ad infinitum. As John Todd, director of New Alchemy, says, you know, we're learning more and more about less and less and less and less. But it doesn't give you any sense, at least the education that I received, didn't take one step towards showing us how the whole thing fit together. The earth it's a beautiful system. It's a whole system. It's been sustainably developing. I'm going to use that term, sustainably developing, not growing, developing for, for 4 billion years. Input from the sun, recycling, regeneration, over and over again. Yet nothing in my formal education talked about the beautiful synergies, talked about the whole system, talked about the emergent properties that, that happen when the right parts come together in the right proportion. And Bucky Fuller made a couple of Interesting observations that you'll see relates now to when we go to the city because what happens is 
looking at whole systems reveals possibilities that we didn't know existed. And he gave a couple of examples. He says, you know, you can't predict the whole system by looking at the parts in isolation. Okay, great. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is, in one example, he says, you know, for instance, you, nothing in the individual properties of hydrogen, the gas, or the individual properties of oxygen, the gas, give you any indication that would combine to the right proportions, two parts hydrogen to one part oxygen, that you get water. The, the principles and the properties of water are not suggested in the least by looking at the individual parts in isolation. But when they're put together in the right proportion, there's water, which obviously is really critical. Sodium consumed individually, we kill you. Chlorine consumed as a, you know, just would kill you if you consumed it. Now, of course, sodium chloride could still kill you, but nonetheless, when combined in the right proportions, you do get a different property. That is, you know, maybe the slow kill instead of the quick kill. But that is, <laughs> but that's a very important principle, because what it says is, since you can't predict the whole by looking at the parts in isolation. You know what? The best thing to do is have a sense of where you want to go. Have a sense of the whole system. Have a sense of the vision of where you want to go, and then see what parts you need to bring together to get you from here to there. So that was, a, for me, at any rate, a revelation. It was a breakthrough in the way to look at the world. And I will honestly tell you that as a result of that, I never saw the world in the same way again. Now, you know, you can say born again, you can say, you know, spiritual. And yeah, I think it was in many cases, and many of us are so afraid to admit that, that it was, like, was a spiritual experience. It was a revelation. And as a result, I began now, to become, yes, I'm going to use this word too, an optimist. In these times, and in this difficult time, I became an optimist. And the only reason an, an optimist, as defined by Fuller is, Someone who understands that you have options. It's not saying that you, you are naively believing that it's going to work out or that everything is going, to, is going to get resolved, but it says, you know what? Now that I see things this way, I realize that we do have options. We don't have to do things the same way. And so it was shortly after getting out of, out of, out of, out of college that, that, again, we're still interested in environment, but the area that it focused on, and the area that became critically important, was food. And as you'll see, and I just talked to someone here just a, just a couple of minutes ago from Marblehead, who was also working on some projects and realized that in looking at rebuilding their, or not rebuilding, but, but doing some community work there, food became a central issue. Food becomes a central issue. Food is very much a central issue in all of our lives. And, and, it, and it's interesting enough that it becomes a very important organizing tool. We know that from community gardens. Anybody who's worked in the city, and if you really want to see getting people together to work on a common thing, a common project, working on a project that in the midst of devastation, in the midst of, of um, uh, uh, poverty, and in the midst of vandalism, get a community garden there. Many cases, most cases, untouched. It will survive. Same with murals. There's, a, there's a obviously reasons for that. But food became a central issue for me because, one, we all eat, and two, we all take it for granted, for the most part. Not all of us. I think right now with the sustainable agriculture movement, with community organic gardening, we probably don't take it for granted, but we know so little about it, to be perfectly honest. And, and so here I was, having transplanted from Ohio, now in, in, in New England, um, saw a little report that was put out by the, by the part, Department of Agriculture in Massachusetts around 1970, I think it was around 1978. It was the first policy that a state had ever put together to look at its food system. 
And I wonder why that was so. And the reason was is that the, all the state officials in Massachusetts, and actually this applies for New England in general, were, were actually some of them, not the commissioner of agriculture himself, but most of the other officials were astounded when they found out that we import about 90% of our food from, uh, well, just import 90% of our food, and that we're dependent upon outside sources for that much. 60%, um, this is something you're probably all aware of, but 60% of the imported food comes from California. And where, from Cali where in California does that come from? From, that's right, San Joaquin, and what, what an area that nature has other plans for. I mean, anyone, you know, Cadillac Desert, you, you've seen, but, but nature says, okay, you know, I'll let you guys tinker. You can tinker if you want to, and they, they have, and here we're talking about technology again. Every natural body of water, every natural body of water, and that's in and, and the West Coast, has literally been rerouted, dammed, restructured so that it can feed the agricultural system there. The Colorado River doesn't even, it dries up before it drains into the Gulf because of the demands on water. Now, and and you've got to know that just as sure as the, 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 the banks of the Mississippi and the banks of the, of the Missouri Rivers are reclaimed by nature every so often, and we sit there and we, we're appalled and we're aghast and we say, isn't this terrible? Look at poor people. I mean, they are poor people, but, you know, being flooded out of their, their, their homes. But we know that's going to happen, Right? I mean, you know it's a floodplain. We know it's going to happen. They can rebuild. But, I mean, why is it that that's a surprise to us? Wisdom. I mean, the conventional wisdom says we're going to build again. Why? Because the insurance companies want to flourish and the home building industry wants to flourish. That's the conventional wisdom. It makes economic sense to do that. The gross domestic product goes up when that happens, doesn't it? Yes, it does. The gross domestic product goes up every time there's a catastrophe. Right? Is that telling us? And what is that telling us? So, you know, here we are. But, but real wisdom would say, you know what? Don't build there. Don't build there. Real wisdom would also say, you know what? We're very short-sighted if we're depending upon an area of the country that we know at some point nature will reclaim as desert for supplying us with the bulk of our food. Bread basket of the world. And it has been prodigious. Unbelievable. But think about it in terms of real time. In real time, nothing. 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, we think that is like incredible. Four billion years? It's, it's, I mean, put it in perspective, it's very short-sighted. It's very short-sighted. So, what did Massachusetts? Massachusetts decided we're going to do something about that, but we're going to try to do something that doesn't require a great infusion of money and not to be dependent upon the federal government. And they came up with a policy. And they identified a couple of areas that they could uh, start to address and really have some impact on this great this importation of food situation. And maybe to strive to reclaim some of our farms. By the way, farmland that was disappearing at the rate of 200 acres, 20, um, excuse me, 20,000 acres per year and 200 farm businesses per year starting at the end of the Second World War. Conventional wisdom said, listen, why grow food in New England? It's rocky, it's hilly. The, the growing season is very short, and everybody knows. Someone once said, you know what, had this country been, quote, settled from the West Coast to the East Coast, let's face it, all of New England would probably would have been a national park. You know, really, if we, if we had time to think about it, if we really had time to think about it, would this have been six, really six individual states? No way. Great place to vacation, go to the Green Mountains, White Mountains, and go on the beaches of Cape Cod, and then go home. 
right? But, but it wasn't discovered that way, and so, quote, discovered. And so what we have are these six tiny states, and here it is, and, and, and the densely, you know, densely populated. This is where the people are, a lot of people, and we're dependent upon this. Sort of, so what do we do? How do we, how do we get around it? And we're not saying we're going to become self-sufficient, but you've got to assume some control. So the conventional wisdom says, ship it out. Conventional wisdom was short-sighted. Conventional wisdom didn't realize that, even though, you know, I can even remember back in 60, or in the, the early 60s when gasoline was 25 or 30 cents a gallon, right? And so transportation costs weren't as much a factor when you had to ship food 3,000 miles in trucks across the country. Quality of food was always involved in that and always affected. You, you take a tomato, and I'm, I'm going to assume most of you are all gardeners here, Take a nice green tomato or a red tomato, ripe tomato, and, and that's grown in your garden and drop it on your kitchen floor and it does what any real good tomato should do, right? It splats. You take, and you take one of those, yeah, she knows what I'm going to say already, and you take one of those that though has been trucked across the country, and I'm, this is not disparaging in California, I mean they're doing what they have to do and then growing food out there, but in order for a tomato to make a, a 3,000-mile trip in a 40-ton in a, in a tractor trailer over you know, bumpy roads, it's got to be tough. I mean, it, it does. And so you have to breed toughness into this tomato. This is technology again. And you breed something out because there's only so much room in that genetic memory for information. So you breed in toughness and you breed out taste. You breed out texture. But, and for those of us who have bad backs, you drop that one on the floor. Fortunately, it bounces back to you. So you don't really have to bend over as far to get it. But the quality of food, I mean, the point is, and I, I mean, we're sort of joking, but the quality of food is affected. The Central Intelligence Agency did a study to determine the average distance of food travels in this country from the farm to the dinner table. That's right, the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, so whether you believe this or not, I'll leave that up to you. But they discovered that the average distance is 1,400 miles, regardless of where you are in the country. 1,400 miles. And so in most cases, you know what, we're... We eat fresh vegetables, unless it's locally grown, you're, you're probably better off eating frozen vegetables than you are fresh, because at least the stuff that's been frozen and not been shipped around for about 1,400 miles has locked in some of the nutritional value, as opposed to stuff that looks, you know, perception is half the battle, but, but the, we're, we're being deceived, I guess is what I'm saying. And so the, the conventional wisdom has not served us, has not served us well. Um, when I was, um, so one of the solutions Let's reestablish the oldest marketing system in the world. When I was department, and you see it happening now, farmers markets. I mean, we're depending upon, you know, these trucks delivering, and, and farmers are going out of business. One of the reasons they were going out of business is they couldn't make enough money, obviously. I mean, farming, quote, is supposedly uneconomical. You can't survive in New England. Take the dollar, I forget, and I don't have the exact figure, but you take, uh, you know, the do every dollar spent on food, and you divide it up and see how much of it actually comes back to the farmer. It's probably somewhere around seven cents. And, you know, because where does everything else go? It goes to all the, quote, middle people. No, we can be honest about this, middle men, right? Because that's basically who's running these, no, I'm, you know, serious. I mean, the, the distribution system, the, 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 the wholesale marketing system. So every time food changes hands, the price goes up. The consumer and the, all the people in the middle benefit. And the people on two ends are the ones that suffer. And who are they? Farmers and us, the consumers. So here's all the money being made in the food system. It's all being done by people who package it, people who distribute it, people who put the big, you know, the, the elaborate supermarket things up and charge slotting fees, elaborate fees, in order for you to get your product on the shelf in the first place. And the people on both ends sort of suffer. So the idea was, could we, not as a permanent solution, but could we take out the middle person? 
and then make the direct link, direct connectivity between consumers and farmers. And so you know what far farmers markets in terms of community building, in terms of wisdom, it's transparent. You, s you know what's going on. The, the wholesale system is a black box. You don't know what's going on in the middle. You don't know who gets the money. Farmer's market, the farmer picks it, brings it in, in most cases, to the city. And what we found in, in, in areas like South End, Roxbury, Dorchester, by doing that, some farmers could make as much as 25, 30, 40 percent more selling directly to consumers. Consumers could save 25, 15, 25 percent. But even there, in some cases, consumers found that they were still spending a little more at the farmer's market because the traditional agribusiness is still being subsidized. A great deal by those water, water rights. I mean, that whole water subsidy is what keeps those farmers going. And we thought that would, that would probably be the death knell for the, for the farmers' markets in the city, particularly in poor parts of the city. But we were wrong. People kept coming back. We did surveys. We asked the, the, the woman uh, with her three or four kids coming, why are you still spending a bit more for the vegetables at the farmers' market as opposed to going right over there to stop and shop and buying them and getting them cheaper? And she looked at us like we were crazy and said, because they eat these. <laughs> and, and would it make sense for me to save a little bit more by going there and then scrape three quarters of it off into the garbage because they don't eat it? Or look at this. And they were buying, I mean, I'm you know, serious, I mean, the peas and the fresh, because they were so naturally sweet and because they were fresh, they were eating them raw. They were eating them before they even got them into the, the house to cook them. So that's real wisdom. And the conventional wisdom says, you know what? No, just got to make it cheaper. But people want quality. They really do want quality. So the farmers markets, remember in 1967, there were maybe four of them that had survived in the, in the state. They're now probably close to 100 farmers markets. They're not, the only, they're, they're not going to be the solution. There are other solutions. And I think Sam, Susan Smith from Caretaker Farm are here, and there are others who are doing work in community-supported agriculture, where farmers are actually partnering with communities, and communities are buying shares, sharing the risk with farmers and how they grow their food. They will, they, will, they will take some of the brunt if a crop fails, but they'll also take advantage of and share in the bounties if, if the farm does better than expected. But it's sharing the risk. It's also helping farmers with cash flow. It's changing the relationships between things. It's building communities, using the wisdom of how things really work. We did a little work with the Department of, of Agri when I was with the Department of Agriculture and Farmers, uh, with dairy industry as well. And I want to quickly get to there, and then I'm going to segue into the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, and you'll see why these, all these parts have been important. But we worked, and all, all I will tell you here is that we did an awful lot of work to preserve the remaining dairy farms in the state because for those of us concerned about quality of life and the rural character or the, the New England landscape, whether it's in Massachusetts or or Vermont or New Hampshire, even just in Massachusetts alone, dairy farms preserve about 300,000 acres of open space. And when the dairy farms go out of business, regardless of the milk, when they go out of business, you're going to lose that character. You're going to, and particularly in Massachusetts, but certainly in Vermont. And farmers are going out of business because they're relying upon an antiquated marketing system that's based on something called the Minnesota-Wisconsin scheme that determines where, you know, that determines how much milk is uh, is, is, is the price farmers get and the distance that you happen to be from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So there's this convoluted scheme. There are more people in this country, I would almost guarantee you this, who understand, let me just say this, understand quantum physics than understand how milk is priced. <laughs> I'm willing to take a bet on that. And because of that, once again, 
It's all obscured, and we suffer when we find we are told that things don't make sense or, or are uneconomical. So places like the New Alchemy Institute, which I had the, the, the privilege of working for a number of years, tried to look at technologies that can we develop technologies that are designed to preserve whole system integrity. Can we produce food-producing systems that don't rely upon fertilizers, pesticides, or herbicides in order to grow food? And can we grow food year-round in, in passive solar greenhouses that don't depend upon fossil fuel inputs? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can build bio-shelters or greenhouses that actually can support fruiting fig trees and banana trees that don't require any backup system of heat. We can grow enough food on a tenth of an acre of land to feed 13 people three vegetable portions a day for a year without the use of chemical fertilizers, pesticides, or herbicides. Now, again, there's, there's flip sides to that, labor there's, and, and, and knowledge and whatever. But right now, the, I, the, the only reason I'm throwing this out, that that is, I'm just saying, possible. So therefore, I'm an optimist because I know that options exist. And now, you know, for a number of years, New Alchemy flourished in Hatchville, Massachusetts, Cape Cod. People said it was a hippie outpost, it was elitist, it was, you know, they're doing all these, you know, things and skinny dipping at noontime and so what. But what, what does that have to do with, with reality? What does that have to do with the real problems facing the world? Because, so they can build a geodesic dome, so what? Well, I'm telling you right now that, and, and New Alchemy, by the way, for most of you probably know, um, closed its doors around 1991, no longer exists on the 12 acres in Hatchville, Massachusetts. Closed its doors in Hatchville, Massachusetts, but New Alchemy is very much alive. Very much alive. As a matter of fact, New Alchemy has done, if anything, it's emerged from the womb. I don't know if people know, I'm mentioning the New Alchemy Institute as if people understand or know what it was, but it was an incredible research and education incubator and facility on Cape Cod that, that really pioneered the work, thanks to John Todd, Nancy Todd, Bill McClarney, pioneered the work in what we, with the appropriate technology movement back in the, in the, the 60s and 70s, but right now probably as responsible as any other organization right now for having sort of supported the, what we now call sustainable economic or sustainable development better for give or take or whether you buy that, that phrase or not, but really talking about how we can integrate and merge environmental and economic concepts. And so there they were, it's closed down, but now Gary Hirschberg, who was one of the executive directors of, of, of New Alchemy, is now running Stonyfield Yogurt up in, in Wilton, New Hampshire. Um, there's Ron Zweig, who, who developed the integrated aquaculture system in the ARC, the greenhouse, who's now actually working at the World Bank, and the first and only aquaculturalist at the World Bank, but looking at how to work in, in the developing world on aquaculture projects. Linda uh, Gusman is now in Hawaii doing community-based aquaculture work. And, um, and I have been sort of in, fortunate enough to sort of take a bit of new alchemy and see if it's appropriate and can be transplanted into the inner city in Roxbury. The Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative is an incredible organization, and I'm going to say that because the only, the only correction I'll make in terms of my introduction is uh, that, unfortunately, I had nothing to do with its founding. Uh, um, it, was founded, it was founded in 1984. I've been there uh, the past two and a half years. Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative is a community-based planning and organizing entity that's in Roxbury, Massachusetts probably, certainly, one of the poorest communities in all of Massachusetts. Cape Verdean, African-American, Latino, white residents. A number of years ago, two miles south of Boston, the area that we, that we work in, uh, there are 24,000 people. Um, we have one of the lowest rates of, again, of, of employment, highest rates of, of poverty in any place in the, in the, uh, in the state. 
uh, and it suffered uh, in a number of ways, uh, some by policies and practices, some intentional, some not, in terms of how and its evolution and what the and how it was how it was devastated and why it was devastated, and it was devastated. Twelve years ago, the Dudley Street area, the community I'm working in now, had been reduced to 1,400 abandoned lots. Rubble, nothing. You could stand, you could stand in the middle with an area that we call another triangle, which is a, is a one and a half square mile area, and you could stand and literally turn in all directions and not see a building. Not, I mean, just a wasteland. Now, part of this, you know, and it used to be, you know, not that long ago, prior to that, it was a thriving community. Irish Catholic, Jewish community, number of policies and programs, again, some intentional, some unintentional, some well-conceived, some ill-conceived, starting with the GI Bill, when people were encouraged to go and build homes in the suburbs, and a lot of people left the area, redlining, abandonment, neglect, when immigrants came in from Cape Verde and and, and Puerto Rico, uh, the community changed its character. People started to leave. It became an enclave for poor and the disenfranchised. In many cases, folks weren't even, weren't even citizens of the, you know, of, the, of the country. And so what happened was you had a lot of buildings there. People owned landlords, and there were slumlords, and there were many. And they were waiting for urban renewal. They wanted to make a killing. And so they were waiting, waiting for the same thing that happened in the West End of Boston and the same thing that happened in the South End to come, and they were going to hold on to that property until it happened. And when it happened, they were going to make a financial killing. But the community said, no, we don't want urban renewal. And it stopped. And therefore, you had a bunch of people holding a lot of land, a lot of buildings, and they didn't know what to do with it, and they weren't going to make their killing, but they weren't going to suffer. They were going to minimize their loss. And the way they minimized their loss is they burned their buildings down. And night after night after night after night, there were fires. And everyone from the outside said, oh, look at, look at, well, you know, what's wrong with this community? Look at, they're burning down their own homes, destroying their own communities. It was not the people who were living there that were destroying their community. It was the slumlords who were trying, they were arsoning their buildings so that they could make as much money as they could on what they perceived to be a lost cause. And they burned, and they burned, and they burned, until the area was literally flattened. Again, imagine 1,400 abandoned lots. The community, and what happened? So you've got, you know, Wendell Berry talks about land that's neglected or that looks neglected. And when it's neglected, what happens? It becomes increasingly more neglected. So here come trucks now on their way to the, to the dump, right? And they're going to be, they're ready to go to the dump where they're going to have to be charged a, a you know, tipping fee and pay to have their, their trash uh, um, um, deposited. But all of a sudden they drive by Roxbury and they look at these, this area, abandoned lots, no people. Whoops, why would I want to pay a fee? Let me just come back here a little later tonight after dark. And they'd come back after dark, and they'd dump. And they'd dump. But it got so brazen that after a while, because <laughs> nobody seemed to care, they'd come in the middle of the day. And, and residents who were still, some of the houses were still there, would see people just come with their dump trucks back up to a lot and just dump. So you got sides of beef, you got old refrigerators, you got cars, you got everything, you got rats, you got the vermin, you got the filth. People became increasingly ill, they became sick. And basically, they just, and finally, the community said, no more. And so in St. Patrick's Church, they held a meeting and said, we're going to do something about this. We've got to do something about this. And they said, we're going to get these illegal trash transfer stations closed down. We're going to make a stink. And then the TV cameras showed up. Then right after the TV camera showed up, Mayor Ray, Ray Flynn showed up. And Mayor Flynn came in, and he had just lost an election to, to, to Mel King and was not very popular in, in communities of color. So he said, and he made a commitment, I'll do anything 
that you folks need to help you clean up this community. I will do anything. There will be resources. There will be money. You let me know what you want. Peter Medoff and others and Shea Madjun and sort of said, okay. Um, first thing they asked for were rakes and shovels and garbage bags to clean up the lots. And they did. No, this was important. They did. And they started to clean up and the TV cameras came up and, and, and Ray Flynn looked kind of, you know, look, look, this was good. This was a good political piece for him. And then um, they called him back again and said, we, uh, we got something else we need. And he said, well, this is okay. You know, they want a rakes and shovel. I'm gonna, maybe they want a little bit more. And so the community came to him and said, um, we have a comp we're going to develop a comprehensive plan to rebuild our neighborhood. Um, but in order to do that, we need control over the land. So we'd like the power of eminent domain over the abandoned land in our community. And gulped and balked at that one. That wasn't something he expected. But, but they made a case, eminent domain, obviously, and, and many, many people in that in the, even in the community said, no way. No way. That's the very tool that people have used to force us out of our community. It's a very powerful tool. We don't even understand the nature of that power. How do we know that we could use that wisely? Many meetings, and I'm, I'm only pointing this out to say that this was not just a, you know, let's just do it and, and go out and make a lot of uh, ruckus. And, and it was very deliberate. It was very thoughtful. And they decided that in order to rebuild, you had hundreds of different owners. And it's, a, you know, again, a wasteland, but you had hundreds and hundreds of individual owners. How are you going to rebuild? How could you possibly do it if you didn't have some control over the land? I mean, that's really, you know, what's, what, what, what's real wealth? Real wealth, conventional wisdom says wealth is, well, let's give them jobs. Let's bring in Walmart. Let's bring in, um, you know, uh, IBM. Let's bring, and let's give them jobs. That's not real wealth. Real wealth means you have some assets. It means you build on something that the community owns or the individual in the community owns, and there's no more valuable asset, if you really want to talk about building, than having the land. Farmers know that. Obviously, we know that. It's the land. And so through, through hard work and actually with support of Ray Flynn and, and Stephen Coyle, the director of the Boston Redevelopment Authority, DSNI became the first and to date only community-based organization to be granted eminent domain authority over a one-and-a-half-square-mile area right in the heart of Boston. The Ford Foundation came forward, gave us a $2 million loan to buy, to pay fair market value. This was only unabandoned parcels that had been neglected. So if you had a building, we couldn't do it. If you took care of your land, we couldn't do it. But we were looking at the, at the parcels that were overgrown, that still had trash on them, that were attracting vermin, that were, and we said, you know what? The, and it wasn't individuals, it was the community so it became a community land trust in the heart of Boston. Community land trust. The $2 million, by the way, never touched. Through ground leases and through the sale of land, the, the $2 million gave the project legitimacy, but we never had to touch a dime of it in order to make this work. 225 homes have been built, all affordable, duplexes, single-family homes, townhouses, row houses, all based on a community here. New Alchemy Institute dealt with physical technologies, greenhouses, windmills, fish farms. There's another alchemy, and I'm going to call it civic alchemy, because you've got to make it happen. You know, just because you, the better, we all know the story about the better mousetrap. You can build a better mousetrap. You can build the, the light bulb, you know, remember that, that won't go out, but then all of a sudden nobody wants to, you know, all of a sudden, they, you know, GE or whoever said, we don't want to sell that. Why? Nobody would ever buy light bulbs again, so get that one back on the shelves. Or, or whatever it be. But it's not just enough to know that you have the technology. You have to say, is it going to, one, is it really an appropriate technology? Is it really going to serve the community? Is it really going to enhance the process of empowerment and community building? And how do we make that happen? 
So the land trust was there, and the Dudley Neighbors Incorporated was founded to, to manage the land trust, but most importantly was a system, and this is really important, a self-governance. We weren't, we're not a district, we're not a neat political area. We are basically an area that was defined by devastation, poverty. And what happened was the Dudley Street Neighbor Initiative created its own governing board, 29-member board of directors, elected by the community every two years. And they plan. They hired, they said, we are the planners of our community. Participatory democracy, one. Participatory planning, two. Who plans a community? Not the experts. We'll use experts. We're not saying we, we really will use it, but we don't want the experts to come in and tell us what to do. We may consult with experts to help us understand how to get something done once we determine what that is. So in 1987, a comprehensive plan was developed with the assistance of a, of a, of a consulting firm called DAC International, and that plan laid out the vision. Urban Village. It wasn't no... We're talking about housing, affordable housing, home ownership, reestablishing ownership, a base, a foundation, people living there, and it said an economic development strategy that would, that would create a village, a 21st century village. Now that village means a certain scale. It means that the businesses that we're looking for, we're not looking for an anchor. You know what we're looking for? We're looking for a bunch of what Bucky Fuller called trim tabs. Now, the anchor is the thing that you put, you know, here, you plop it down and you're there. Bucky said the most, one of the most important principles in, what he, in comprehensive anticipatory design science is the trim tab. If you understand a whole system, he said, what you'll understand is that every whole system has at least one place where you can apply a trim tab. A trim tab in nautical terms or in aviation terms, large ocean-going ship, cutting through the water, going at a pretty good clip. In order to change the direction of that ship, you have to apply a great deal of energy because the ship has built up a great deal of momentum and the water has density. So to turn the ship, you've got to overcome the momentum of the ship, the density of the water, to turn the rudder. Unless you know where to place the trim tab. At the tail, trailing edge of the rudder, right above the surface of the water, you can put a little flap. And when you turn that flap, it creates a partial vacuum that turns the rudder, and then the rudder turns the ship. So with minimal effort and energy, knowing where to place the trim tab, you can take large systems and you can find the point of leverage and you could turn it. You don't really need the lever that's as long as the universe or a state card or whoever said, so give me a lever long enough. No, give me the trim tab. Give me the trim tab and let me find out where they can go. And so if you, if you look for those instead of the anchor and the savior or the Walmart or the stride right, uh, you know, that's a strategy. And so we're looking at the trim tab approach to developing the community. So let me, let me before I end, say that we've got a governing system. 29-member board of directors, and let me tell you, these are public elections. People come out, they, they campaign, and they, they take their role very seriously. We have 225 new homes. Every single home, every single home, where it was, what kind of house it was, whether it's duplex or single, whatever, and where it's situated was all determined by the community. These are community meetings. They come out, they, they, and, when the, when they, and, and the community selects the developers, and the architects. The architects have to come in and present their designs. And these are, this is process. This, you know, the, the civic alchemy is about process. And the process, and the reason so many people are afraid of this and scared because the process is messy. And there's no way around the messiness. It's muddled, it's messy, it's dirty, it's time consuming, and it's aggravating, it's frustrating, and it's beautiful. It works.
and the and, and the and the point Joanna Campy at lunch made this point. We were talking about you know we were talking about teetering on the way. we're always teetering, and this is the honest truth. And, a, and a, a process like this right now, because there is so little support and there's so little precedent for it, we are always teetering on the verge of success and failure. We're always right there, like there, right there, back there. You know, okay, we're there. and 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 much of that depends upon the faith that we have in the process, because there are times when the muddles are so bad and we don't have anything to rely upon in terms of precedent and we've been stuck and stymied for three or four days or weeks on a particular point and the inclination or most folks would be that's it or let the director or let somebody come in make their pitch dictatorial get it done it's over but as Joanna said to me there's what if you let the process go through what you will understand is that the breakthroughs come through as a result of breakdown and when, the, when, you, when it breaks down and you allow yourself, you know what? We can't do it within this. We've got to jack it up to another level. We've got to get out of that way of thinking and look for something else. So, so what are some of our solutions? When we got to that point, this is a community, poor, African-American, Latino, Cape Verdean, white residents. And so what is the basis for our economic development strategy or one major trim tab? It's urban agriculture. Yes, we're going to have a community-supported farm. We already have one and a half acres in production. We have a farmer's market right on our town common that was part of one of the vacant lots that's been redeveloped into a public space that we can reclaim to deal with. As, as the, Jane Jacobs, if you want to, if you, you know, we've looked at professional planners and we've read the textbooks and we had the consultants in, but if you want to know who's guiding the Dudley Street Roxbury project in terms of its strategy for urban revitalization, it's Jane Jacobs. Read the death and life of great American cities, the wealth of cities, cities and the wealth of nations, and there is real wisdom. And the wisdom that we've got that comes out of our process, for the most part, is sitting around, maybe with a group this large, attacking a problem and realizing that the wisdom to solve the problems comes, it's the collective wisdom. It's, it's out there. It really is. You know, Bucky Fuller said that, that each human evolves, and as we evolve, we each represent a potential way the universe could have evolved in terms of the principles embodied in how we develop. So you know what? You want to tap as many of those universes as you possibly can. And that's really what the process at Dudley Street is doing. And I, So we've got a bio-shelter. Remember, I don't know if you know the new Alchemy Institute, but there's something, there was something called the Cape Cod Arc, which is a beautiful structure that integrated agriculture, aquaculture systems within a passive solar greenhouse design and, and was done pretty much as research or, or education. But we're building one in Dudley, and we're building one on a brownfield site. And I, sh I should just quickly mention before I end that, that in this area, this one and a half square mile area, just so you kind of get a sense of the challenge, but still, and I'm going to still tell you that I'm totally optimistic about success, we have 54 hazardous waste sites identified, 54 identified hazardous waste sites within that area. We currently still have 13 trash transfer stations. I mean, this is, you know, we, we're not saying that, you know, we know that something has to happen and things have to be recycled, but we think that 13 within a one and a half square mile area is a little bit much, a little much. And so we're, so we still do organize and we still do fight battles. And we still see organizing as a tool to, to, to fight the battles that need to be fought. But for the most part, we're organizing around a positive vision. Organizing doesn't mean that you always have to be confrontational. It doesn't mean that you have to identify an enemy. It means that you can identify a shared vision. And so DSNI, Delhi Street Neighborhood Initiative, planning and organizing entity, community-based, 
our major goal, we're not, we, we're not a con traditional community development corporation. We see as our primary goal to create a shared vision. That is, to facilitate the process that brings the community together, all the stakeholders in the community, and that includes our CDCs, it includes our, our, our small businesses, it includes government agencies, it really does, and do, can we agree upon a shared vision and then a strategy to get us from here to there. And really, if we do that, and I think we, and that is happening, it will change the way that people think about revitalizing urban areas. And you know what? When we, re, when we do that, and if we can demonstrate, sorry, to, some real models, honest-to-goodness models of, of, of livable, not just livable, desirable cities, city of villages. I mean, that's really what we want, and I mean, that's what Boston's talking about, a city of villages. We want density. We need density. We do thrive on density. That's what cities are built for. You know what? So this suburban sprawl and loss of farmland, yes, that is a problem, and people are going to go somewhere. But you know what? We are saying we want to pull you back here. Uh, when we rebuilt our homes, it's the first people that came in and bought the homes in Roxbury were the people who used to live there because it's home. It's home. They couldn't be there when it was 1,400 abandoned lots because there was no place for them to live. It is a place. And 10 years from now, maybe as soon as five years from now, I'm going to say this as a, as a, as a, as a guarantee that any of you, when, you, when, when, when your friends and, or, or relatives or whatever come into Boston, your relatives can also be your friends, I realize that. When they come to, to Boston and land at Logan Airport at the bus station, they're going to say, you know what, if we're going to be in Boston, we've got to go to the village. We've got to go to Dudley Village because here's the urban village, and this is a vision that I'll end with. Dudley Village will be this most incredible, vibrant, multicultural urban village where now the cultural diversity, just like the diversity in nature, is the source of strength, culture, the economic strength, because what you'll see, because you won't see the Walmarts and you won't see the Burger Kings, or you may see one or two, but you won't see, you won't see that as being the dominant part of the economic landscape. What, in fact, you will see instead are Cape Verdean, Puerto Rican, African-American uh, restaurants, European restaurants. You'll see clothing stores. You'll see, you'll see craft stores. You'll see craft stores that thrive because, in some cases, they're going to take advantage of technologies. We get visitors from all over the country right now. This is the community that raised itself from the ashes. So we get visitors from Germany, Japan, France, Russia, who's now saying, you know what, how do we organize? We don't know how to make decisions as a community. We have so long been in a system where decisions were made for us. Can you help us understand how we can organize and plan as a community? So we've been asked to do seminars and community organizing because that's what community organizing is about. So these people are all coming. They're coming for tours. So you know what? If you're a, just a, even a tiny bit savvy, and I don't consider myself to be an economic development person, but I said, you know what? We've got a market. We've got a market. People are coming all the time. And not only are they coming to us on foot, they're coming to us over the web. And, you know, we've got the DAC plan, that comprehensive plan. You can't find it in the library. It's not written in the book yet, uh, although there is a book on the DSNI. But we, people say, how do we get a hold of your plan? You put it on the web. So, so the Citizens Participation Network out of Brandeis University, funded by the Cerdna Foundation, has that on the web. They also have our urban vision visioning piece. And so we get tons and tons of hits. Not tons. We get a lot of hits. Can't measure in tons that way. But anyway, we get a lot of hits. And, you know, one of the things that we want to do, and, and it's in the works, is to say, once they come to visit us, you know what? We can have them visit our virtual village. Why can't they buy the Gladys's homemade sofrito over the web? Why, when they come to visit, can't they visit our marketplace so that people who may never even set foot physically in the village can buy village products? And why would they buy village products? Because just like Vermont has done with establishing itself as a place, 
You know, I mean, remember, first Vermont, freshness of Vermont, you would buy cheese, and that made sense. You might buy milk products, that made sense. But now what are they selling? I mean, uh, mail-order pizzas, salsa, which is very good, but I'm saying they've taken advantage of this identity, and they've said, we're going to market the hell out of it, and we're going to buy this because it's fresh. Well, you know, the same thing can happen now in this place that's culturally diverse, that's very exciting, and you know what? I want to, I want to experience a part of the village. So that becomes a piece of this entire puzzle that is now sort of this vibrant, multicultural, urban village that has in fact risen from the ashes that does talk about the wisdom, using wisdom, the wisdom of the community to build and revitalize what was once a devastated area. Thank you very much. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust. Building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region. And engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413 528 1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.